We'll be open before that. That's called the soft opening, okay. but we don't announce that ahead of time because I need to give my staff a chance to ramp up towards the to, to the grand opening. So we don't have a planned guest list, but typically what I have contacted some organizations to say, could you bring a dog here to do tricks? We'd love to have some different type of therapy, therapy dogs, perhaps a police canine dog. Uh, we have one charity that's a search and rescue group. They've already said they'd li- like to come over. So maybe we'll have a search and rescue demonstration. We'd love to get the mayor of Tigard. So there's so many different things that we can plan and we, we want to incorporate it. It all sounds opening. like great yeah. fun. So yeah. give us your location of the business and um, and your website information. Okay, so the address is 7700 Southwest Dartmouth Street in Tigard, number 110. It's in the Walmart parking lot. They are our landlord and we're in within the Verizon building. People will see the Verizon building. We're in that same building just at the opposite end. There's a great outdoor patio to bring your own dog. And a big sign that says Fido's Tap House. And a big dog that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. big sign there. Okay, okay, great. Scott, it looks like we've run out of time now. Thank you so much for being our guest today. It was wonderful. And we hope that Fido's Tap House will be a great success for both you and all the adoptable doggies you'll be bringing there. thank you. Okay. This is Deb Stedman saying thanks to all of our listeners as well. To hear any of the voices for the Animals podcast, just go to the station's website at kboo.fm and look for our audio programs page. And please plan to tune in again next month. Until then, remember that you too can be a voice for the animals. preceding program was produced at KBU Community Radio in Portland, Oregon. More audio can be found online at kboo.fm. You know, on a really dark night, even in the North Carolina mountains, you might be able to pick up KBOO Community Radio coming to you from Portland, Oregon. This is SciCon coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina, supporting community radio, radio that works for all of us. Good morning and welcome to Film at 11 here on Your Community Radio, KBOO Portland. This week, in the spirit of Halloween, Matthew revisits La Llorona, a rare Mexican horror film, while Jeff Godsell reconsiders the influential Night of the Living Dead. And in the book corner, the new BFI Film Classics monograph on the eerie Jamesian Picnic at Hanging Rock. But first, some thoughts on the new film from Todd Field called Tar. How's the writing going? Not so well. I keep hearing something. Schopenhauer measured a man's intelligence against his sensitivity to noise. Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed by emotion? Yes. Yes, that does happen. We have a problem. I received another weird email. There's no reason to get caught up in any intrigue. I'm worried. She's starting to disappear into herself. best films of this or any other year opens today at a theater near you. Tar, 
written and directed by former Portlander Todd Field and starring Kate Blanchett as a symphony conductor caught up in the vortex of her own conduct, her lies, and her estrangement from her roots. The whole cast is excellent, including Nina Haas and Mark Strong. The narrative constantly surprises. The music is great, and Todd Field learned some valuable lessons from Stanley Kubrick in staging, pace, and lighting from when he appeared in Eyes Wide Shut. Be prepared, though, as this is not a film for everyone in that nothing is explained in the usual sense, and there are numerous references to composers, music composition, and insider takes on how symphonies function. Yet the story is clear and could have been titled after that new Hollywood masterpiece, The Puzzle of a Downfall Child. You want to dance the mask, you must service the composer. Now, here's Matthew of Cabo's Gremlin Time with a look at the chilling Mexican horror film La Llorona. Well, so there's no confusion. I'm not going to be talking about any of the recent films, uh, La Llorona. There's especially a good one from 2019 from Guatemala. But I'm going to go back and look at the very first version of this uh, character done in uh, Mexican cinema, and that's from 1933. And uh, this is one of the earliest sound films. And in this movie, we're looking at a, a doctor and his family. And he finds out that his son is cursed because the family has this curse on it that has to do with the firstborn son. And when he turns four, he gets murdered. And there's like a, a phantom in this house who's like got all these secret passages and the police are chasing uh, the phantom through the passages and this kid is kidnapped and there's like an altar of Aztec uh, design that the kid's going to be murdered on and it's just it's as much like a nice Edgar Wallace movie than it is like a, a Bram Stoker vampire story um, it, like I said it's one of the first movies produced in Mexico by the forming uh, Mexican uh, film industry which uh, had to come together when sound came in and the sound was replacing silent films and they needed to make movies in the local Spanish so that the audiences who were pretty film savvy though uh, could uh, appreciate them and so this movie really moves along it's got a great pacing it stages these historic flashbacks uh, really well with great costuming and attention to, to the sets and everything and it's got a very good story that's a, that has a sort of political uh, edge to it because we have this uh, one flashback, like I said, it's kind of like Medea. And she's uh, the woman is from a native family, an indigenous family, and she wants her son recognized by the European man she's been uh, sleeping with. But he refuses, and it turns out that he's going to be married to another woman. And it ends up with the woman, uh, the first woman murdering her child and herself and we see her ghost take off very nice special effects for such an early film probably the only technical problem is that the sound uh, you can't have the music and the background or the dialogue at the same time so the music background will drop out and then you'll have talking and then the music will come in when there's no talking but otherwise this is a great little disc it's really worth having from powerhouse video la la rona 1933 a very solid mystery thriller Thanks again, Matthew. Next, Jeff Down in Los Angeles reflects on the impact of 
Night of the Living Dead. With some classic films, especially genre films, it can seem like everything's been said about them. There's no ground left to cover that hasn't already been trod upon. I myself am unlikely to cover, say, Citizen Kane or The Wizard of Oz on this program, but if enough time passes, it can be worthwhile to check back on these films from the past. I'm constantly doing research for my website, watching films from every decade, sometimes revisiting them to see if they're as good as I remembered them. Unfortunately, I've rarely been disappointed. What was good then is still good today, even if time has allowed us a new perspective. Night of the Living Dead, George Romero's legendary tale of modern-day zombies, is over 50 years old now. That's more than enough time for reevaluation. And with a horror film, it's fair to ask, is it even still scary? I was lucky enough to have my first viewing of Night of the Living Dead at a midnight screening a few years after its release at the Star Theater off of Burnside. The Star was an old burlesque theater that had recently been leased as an art house. The place was packed and the walls and high ceiling were suitably painted black. The word had been out for some time on this little gym. A surprisingly effective chiller shot in black and white on a low budget in Pittsburgh. I probably would have been content with a diverting effort with a few thrills, worth the time it took to watch it, but instead, we were all treated to more than that. From the opening scene with that 60s car winding its way up the drive to the cemetery, you want this movie to work. Despite the low budget and sometimes amateurish acting, it does. Night of the Living Dead never dazzles, but the more it unfolds, the more it sinks its teeth into you, so to speak. The black and white photography used because they couldn't afford anything else actually works in its favor. On subsequent viewings, you can appreciate some of the elements that you were not at first aware of, like it is in any good movie. The careful choice of camera angles and the use of close-ups to heighten suspense. Some of these things can be attributed to first-time director George A. Romero's years of making commercials, but I would suggest it has more to do with his watching the right movies. There's a real economy in the shooting and in the editing that's better than most filmmakers with way more experience. Even the music is used wisely and would have been missed without it. Amazingly, it's all basically stolen from other films. I guess... One of the best things you can say about Night of the Living Dead is that while you're watching it, you forget or simply no longer care that this movie was made by a bunch of people far from Hollywood who just decided to make a movie. A horror movie was chosen because it seemed that they would have a better chance of distribution. There were ten of them, and they already worked in film production, commercials and the like, so they had access to cameras and development. The screenplay by Romero and John Russo was originally intended to be more of a horror comedy, but as they drew more inspiration from Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, the story got darker. The screenplay was finished before the cast was complete. Most of the cast were total amateurs, including some of them in the crew itself. 
One of the exceptions was Dwayne Jones as Ben, the main lead and the leader of the group of seven trying to ward off the zombies from their barricaded farmhouse. Jones was recommended as an actor from a local theater group. He was a good fit, and being mostly progressive liberals, Romero and company delighted in the fact that they were putting a black man in the role. It was Jones himself who suggested adding some things in the script to comment on black-white relations, but Romero decided it was statement enough not to change the script at all. Romero has said ever since that he regrets that decision and thinks he missed some opportunities there to make some points about civil rights. Either way, Jones did have some concern about hitting a white woman on the screen, even though it was for her own good. Although unintended, some have found social and political messages throughout Night of the Living Dead. Robin Wood going so far as to insist that the zombies eating their own represents American capitalism. Finding its way into the film for sure was Romero's take on the military and the government in general as a bunch of bumbling idiots, as well as his depiction of vigilantes. A scary bunch, even when they're on the right side. When the film was finished and it was time to find a distributor, it became apparent that the film's gore was a little ahead of its time. Even though the flesh that the zombies were feasting on was provided mostly by a roasted ham and the blood was Bosco chocolate syrup, the effect was too much for most distributors to handle. Columbia finally expressed interest but insisted that the ending be changed, that the newly formed militia wouldn't take out Ben, the only surviving member of the Seven. Much to their credit, Romero and company refused to alter their purposefully downbeat ending. And finally, it was the Walter Reed organization who picked up the film out of New York, the title at the time being Night of the Flesh Eaters. The distributors noted that there had been a recent film called The Flesh Eaters, so it was agreed to change the title to Night of the Living Dead. Unfortunately, in changing it on the title frames for the film, they failed to include the small copyright logo that had been there originally. This resulted in Night of the Living Dead being consigned to public domain and to having inferior VHS copies everywhere. Not to mention denying any profits to its rightful owners. The best DVD available is the restored and remastered 40th anniversary edition from Dimension Films, which includes some great commentaries and interviews with the cast and the crew 40 years later. And to answer that question, is it still scary? Try watching it late at night with very few lights on. This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeff. And don't forget to drop into Jeff's website, Essentials of Cinema, for more recommendations. And you are listening to Film at 11 here on Community Radio KBOO Portland. Now, in our book corner, a new monograph on Peter Weir's Australian film industry creating Picnic at Hanging Rock. On St. Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1900, a group of schoolgirls in Australia took a 
day trip to the landmark Hanging Rock. There, three of the girls and one of the teachers disappeared, though one of the girls was discovered later. The final trio were never seen again, and no one knows what happened to them or where they went. Now, this actually happened, of course, but the Hanging Rock itself, with its strangely human-looking fascia, inspired the imagination of Joan Lindsay, whose Jamesian novel, Picnic at Hanging Rock, was a sensation. In 1975, director Peter Weir adapted the novel, and it, in turn, kick-started or reinvigorated Australian national cinema. We can't go much further. We promised Mademoiselle we wouldn't be long away. Sarah reminds me of a little dear Papa brought home once. I looked after it, but it died. Mama always said it was doomed. Doomed? What's that mean, Irma? Doomed to die, of course. The boy stood on the burning deck, whence all but he had fled Trala. I forget the rest. I think I must be doomed. I don't feel at all well. I do wish you'd stop talking for once. Poor Edith. We'll go back soon. Now, as the film nears its 50th anniversary, the British Film Institute has issued a monograph on Picnic by Anna Backman Rogers, who teaches in Sweden and has written books on independent cinema and on Sofia Coppola. Ms. Rogers begins by placing the reputation of the film and chronicling its creation, giving special attention to the role of P Patricia Lovell as the producer. Quote, It was Lovell's stalwart resolve and admiration for the complexity of Lindsay's novel, as well as her impassioned faith in Weir's abilities as a visionary director and her absolutely dogged refusal to be disregarded by a male-dominated industry an industry which, in return, expressed negligible faith in her skill as a producer at the time, that determined Pitnick's sure and steady path to the cinematic screen and its consequent advent into a national canon of filmmaking. That her assiduous labor on Picnic continued, and continues, to be muddied well after the film's release and its subsequent critical acclaim is utterly depressing, yet all too tediously predictable. In 1995, she recalled that Picnic had become, in the industry's eyes, a McElroy production. And, quoting Lovell, I was, after all, a new chum in the business. One of the film industry leaders was quoted in a magazine saying that I was just the girl who read the book. Close quotes. The author moves on to the difficulties of shooting the film at Hanging Rock itself and the creative solutions of cinematographer Russell Boyd. Then on to the sound and music design, including the, quote, airy yet precise melodic refrain of Zamfir's panpipes, which reminds us that we are in the territory of something pagan and ancient. Noting also that the film, quote, has penetrated and remained within our collective cultural imagination, I suggest, because of one of the finest and most exacting calibrations between sound and image in cinematic history." Irma, look at them! 
Next up is an analysis of the role of nostalgia, or the imposition of Victorian values on a pre-existing colonial culture, tied to a particular school of art. Quote, As I sit here writing this book in 2021, during a period in history that is not only post-Mabo, but has also ushered in a cultural and political reckoning with the physical and psychic damage of legacies of coloniality still bodied forth within people and writ large across the land, it would be flagrantly negligent not to acknowledge the violence that these light-filled and exquisite portraits work so assiduously, assiduously to conceal, a violence endemic, one might add, to the very project of empire, close quote. On the so-called Heidelberg School that also influenced the look of the film, she writes, quote, it is perhaps ironic that in seeking to establish a modern Australian identity in keeping with the transition towards federation, an art form that would come to be tied intrinsically to a national style of painting would invoke an artistic legacy such as Impressionism that is so indelibly married to white European culture. In tying this form to an Australian milieu, these images could not and cannot help but assert colonialism as the very essence of the identity that they were and arguably still are seeking to shore up. That is, the transposition of European and especially British values and cultural identity to the Australian landscape and the white population. This leads to a close analysis of the sequence when the girls arrive at the base of the Hanging Rock, concluding the exactitude of timing in Pitnick, the year 1900, 14 February, 12 o'clock, bears further scrutiny. The characters are, unbeknownst to them, caught up in a world that is in transition politically and culturally. Portrayed, in effect, through a still-life tableau, iterated in the subsequent cut to a long shot which provides the graphic match to Ford's painting, the film itself suggests that these are characters who represent an old guard, a vehemently Victorian society whose long-reigning monarch stands in for a sense of security gleaned from utter intransigence to change. This stasis, this sense of entitled arrogance, expressed openly by schoolgirl Edith, who believes that they are the only living creatures in the whole world, is directly belied by the environment surrounding them, which is teeming with movement and life." Close quote. This leads to the citation of Freud on the uncanny, drawing upon that equally Jamesian collected fiction by Sigmund Freud. Here, phrases such as the imaginary and the return of the repressed start to pop up, but soon she comes back to practicalities with a close reading of the film's most famous sequence, The Ascent of Hanging Rock by the Four Girls. Quote, what is apparent is that this line is meant to be prophetic of, in particular, Miranda's mysterious disappearance and her subsequent re-inscription within memory. For it is precisely this moment in the film in which she is transformed into one of cinema's most defining iconic images of youthful female beauty. The melody carried by the pan pipes does, of course, 
help to cast this highly peculiar cinematic spell, but it is the transition from mid-shot, as Mademoiselle de Poitiers' point of view, to close-up, a position technically impossible for any of the characters, that renders Miranda as icon. Here, she is captured as an ideational representation in both the mind of Poitier and that of the viewer. That the film will conclude on this image, which has been pulled into stillness by an increased frame rate and finally fades out, is significant. As such, the film imitates the way in which loss, especially of a loved one, is incorporated into memory as a moment of time. This capture, psychologically, signals an attempt to wrest life from time's relentless melt, but also to cover over the void left in the wake of death with a cherished image that can never make good the lack. This kind of image is when created as a form of talisman against death as ultimate, unknowable, and meaningless void, nothing to love or link with, quoting Larkin. Close quote. Further, quote, the sequence of dissolves in the sequence affects a direct relationship between Miranda and Irma, two young women destined to have very different fates on the rock. Whereas Miranda, having been recast as a totemic sacrifice to some arcane higher power, becomes the container for male fantasy and courtly desire precisely because of her absence. Irma returns as the repository of a dangerous and possibly carnal knowledge that threatens to rupture the genteel carapace of civility so rigidly set in place at Appleyard College, a screen that obscures the wanton sadism and violence that fashions young girls into ladies. The author briefly considers Picnic as a murder mystery, at least in the view of the film's screenwriter, and also as a thesis on courtly love, especially looking at the role of the character Michael in the film's post-disappearance sequences, and decries Weir's deletion of scenes portraying a failed relationship between Michael and Irma after her return, but one can see these scenes on the Criterion DVD. What follows is the pre-Raphaelite themes of women coming into their sexuality and the disturbing link to the photography of underage girls in the work of David Hamilton, which leads to the difficult task of distancing the photography from the David Hamilton look while acknowledging its essential place in the film's construction. Quote, as such, what Pitnick emphasizes is the ontological instability of the image or any given representation, that there is a necessary gap between signifier and signified. In this image of Miranda before a looking glass, we do not merely revel in the appearance of a beautiful young woman who cannot return our gaze. Picnic refutes such simplicity of interpretation. To be clear, I am not arguing that Picnic stages a radical feminist intervention into the paradigm of the cinematic male gaze. Patently, it does not do so. But I do believe that these images are far more complex than merely constituting an invitation to take unadulterated pleasure in looking, which I'm quite sure many viewers do feel, but if this is all they are doing and feeling, they have, as far as I am concerned, missed most of what is actually unfolding on screen." Close quote. Finally, Ms. Rogers traces the influence of Pitnick on some subsequent films, such as 
Innocence from 2004, the following 2014, and most important, The Virgin Suicides, concluding, quote, These are films which radically reconfigure the female rite of passage as one beset by viciousness, indifference, and sadism. More subversively, these films argue that this is a form of deliberate cruelty promulgated by bastions of patriarchal culture, such as a gendered educational system and even the nuclear family. They grapple directly with the consequences of making young women bear the unendurable weight of what I have referred to here as the burden of iconicity. They tell us that we should never be surprised to discover that refusal. Silence, violence, and death come as mutual reposts to systems designed to walk young women into subjugation. They demand we prize open this beautiful veneer to expose the pitiless reality lying just beneath the surface, waiting to be brought out into the light. These images may be necessarily fictitious in nature, but what they ask us to reckon with is very real indeed. Perhaps this is why so many of us are still being haunted by Picnic at Hanging Rock. Will you answer its call? Whatever can those people be doing down there? Like a lot of ants. A surprising number of human beings are without purpose. Although it is probable they are performing some function unknown to themselves. Everything begins and ends at exactly the right time and place. Look. Again, thanks for listening to Community Radio KBO Portland. Film at 11 will be back next Friday. So until then, keep watching your screens. Community Radio, KBOO Portland.
Tune in to K-Boo tonight at 8 o'clock for Squirrel Snow, the one show where we broadcast galactic 